text will be Genesis 5, the abridged version. Um, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years, years and, had, and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahal. After he became the father of Mahael, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. And then he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. And then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other Although Enoch lived a total of 365 years, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we just pray for the message. Heavenly Father, your word is good. Your word is powerful. I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would be with the mouth of our pastor who preaches your word to us. Lord, grow us as a church to reach the community, the state, the nations with your gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pat. You may be seated. Um, I'm hearing a little funkiness going on, so either that needs to be higher, um, so it's over people's heads, or these batteries need to be changed. Did he just change them? Then I think that thing needs to be up, and I think that will help. Right? Especially when you stand, it's like it's blocking all the radiation that's going through the room. Not radiation, that would be bad. <laughs> well, I wanted to say a quick word of prayer um, for uh, Sister Yvonne. Um, she was... Uh, She's okay, but she had to go to the emergency room last night, and she needs some surgery. I, I believe it's relatively minor. But I, um, I told Jake that we would p pray for her. We still are having the meeting. Jake's with her at the hospital right now. He's going to come after church and do the meeting with us real quick and then go care for his wife. So why don't we pray for her right now? Um, and yeah, yeah, so Jake saw my mom, by the way, at the emergency room because she broke her something, ankle. or Yeah, so she's dancing again, you know, and... No, that's not why, but let's pray for, for them. 
God, thanks so much um, this morning that you're faithful, and we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, bless uh, my mother and Yvonne um, as they had to go to the emergency room. We know that that's never fun, but I pray, Lord, that you would just give their hearts peace, heal them quickly, um, take their pain away, and just, just bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we come to, um, oftentimes, um, a section of scripture that's skipped <laughs> um, in our reading or... Uh, or perhaps even in sermon series, because it's just a list of names. Um, what, do, what do we have to do with this? Um, I was even kind of tempted to, you know, wh- what do I really need to say about this? Is there, is there much to say at all? Um, but then I, as I thought through it and read through it more, I realized how deep and rich it actually is and how necessary it is. And just so you know, by the way, we're going through the book of Genesis. If you're new, the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, our aim is to, we, we kind of, we're going slow through it in these early chapters. We'll pick up the pace a little bit more as we proceed. And we're going to end in chapter 12. Um, we're not going to go through the entire book. We're going to end in chapter 12. And hopefully when we get to chapter 12, you'll see why we're ending there. But, um, but it's going to be, um, it's, it has been, I think, for me, a challenging book to, to study, um, to have answers to. There's so many questions that... Um, get raised when you're going through the book of Genesis, like things like did, were the seven days literal days, where's evolution in this, if at all, you know, all of these different questions that we have in our kind of modern and secular minds, you know, so it's, it's challenging to get through these things and, um, and to have a, a good, honest, biblical answer that doesn't create more confusion for people, but um, it's been a lot of fun, and I hope that you've been enjoying it. Um, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's a very important word. Um, that Hebrew word is hesed. <clears throat> It might be, some scholars have claimed, um, the most important Old Testament word that we have um, that describes the character of God. It's a word um, that often is translated loving kindness, the loving kindness of God. Um, Other people have described it as the covenantal love of God Almighty. Very often, um, as Christian parents, um, we expose our children to the Old Testament um, through these kind of like picture Bibles, and I'm sure that you guys have seen these things. And oftentimes what happens is, uh, and I've seen this kind of like, I've, I've seen myself even falling into this, is our kids get kind of used to the stories of the Old Testament, David and Goliath, Adam and Eve, Noah. There's a lot of like adventurous kind of exciting stories uh, happening in the Old Testament. And, and very often in churches, um, we're pretty good at relaying what those stories were so that our kids can can understand those stories and even articulate themselves. But oftentimes, what happens is we end up describing like moral virtues of different leaders, and we get our kids to understand the narrative of the Old Testament, but we might be missing the forest from the trees. Um, They end up learning about these narratives, but why these narratives are being told to begin with is sometimes lost. And I'm not saying that to blame anyone but myself. I know that I can tend to this as well. Quite frankly, the entire Bible is written to demonstrate God's hesed, his loving kindness, his covenantal faithfulness. So when you read about the story of David, for example, or the story of Moses, um, the Red Sea opening, we're reading about the hesed of Yahweh, the loyalty, the, the loyal love of God for his people. The loving kindness, the faithful love, the mercy of God in heaven. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 54, for example. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, hesed, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then in verse 10, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness, my hesed, will not be removed from you. It will endure forever. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And then Lamentations chapter 3, an Old Testament book says, the Lord's loving kindness, his hesed, never ceases, for his compassion never fails. The Lord's hesed is his unconditional, committed, and loyal love for his people, assuring their deliverance, mercy, and forgiveness. 
That's what his hesed is. It is the assurance that God will deliver his people into his eternal city, forgiving all of their sin. That's what his hesed is. Can you see now why this word is so important in the Old Testament? But we have to ask a question. On what righteous ground can God forgive sinners? I'm guilty. I've broken his law. The Bible's clear about this from beginning to end. I've broken the law of God, the commands of God. I'm guilty. I deserve the curse. We've learned about this in weeks past. The curse of sin, which is death. I deserve this. So how can God, if he is righteous and just, just overlook this? How can he overlook guilty sinners and faithfully love them, forgive them, and bring them into his eternal home? And this, in the Old Testament, is explained in the use of covenants. God makes a covenant. Now, if you don't know what a covenant is, it's basically like a divine promise that reaps consequences if broken. A covenant, in, in the past we learned about this in, when we talked about marriage. This is like the textbook definition. It's an elective, family-like relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. There's a relationship of obligation, a loyalty that you owe to the other person because of the covenant made. Does that make sense? And, you're, and the loyalty that you owe them is to love them, to care for them. Now, in Scripture, there are two kinds of covenants. There are conditional and there are unconditional covenants. And this is important. Let me explain this to you. This is a, this is a definition. It's kind of lengthy, but let me give this to you. A conditional covenant is a bilateral covenant in which a proposal of God to man is characterized by the formula, if you will, then I will, whereby God promises to grant special blessings to man, providing that man fulfills certain conditions contained in the covenant. Man's failure to do so results in punishment. Thus, one's response to the covenant agreement brings either blessing or cursing. The blessings are secured by obedience, and man must meet in meet his conditions before God will meet his. Does that make sense? A conditional covenant says, God, I will, God says, I will do this for you if you do that, right? If you keep this or keep that, then I will do this. If you break it, then I will curse you. Basically, if I can summarize a conditional covenant, it basically says this to us. If you break it, you die. That's the curse of the breaking of a covenant in Scripture. If you break this covenant, you will die. We will die. An, un an unconditional covenant is different, though. Let me give you this definition. It's a unilateral covenant. Unilateral, not bilateral. It's a unilateral, unilateral covenant and is a sovereign act of God whereby he unconditionally obligates, without condition, obligates himself to bring to pass a definite blessings and conditions for the covenanted people. This covenant is characterized by this formula, I will, which declares God's determination to do as he promises. So he will do it for us in spite of our obeying the terms of the covenant, you see? It's unconditional. God promises to do something for us in spite of how we may or may not react to the promise. So in the first, if we break it, we die. But if in the, se in the second, if we break it, he dies. See the difference there? The, the first covenant we see in the Bible is a conditional covenant. Some people have called it a covenant of works. It's made in Eden prior to Adam and Eve having sinned against God. It's a conditional covenant. It's a covenant of works. If you do this, then I will do that, God says. You remember, if, you, if you're remembering in sermons past, you might remember what this is. Mankind is told to rule over the, over the creation, right? To reproduce and to fill the earth. They're not to eat from, the tr the, from one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they obey, they enjoy fellowship with God. If they disobey, what happens? You will surely die. So their decision, <clears throat> their blessing, excuse me, is conditioned on their obedience to God or their disobedience brings cursing. In Genesis chapter 3 and 4, we see Adam and Eve disobeying and falling under the curse of this conditioned covenant. 
They would have blessing with God if they kept it, but they didn't keep it, so they are cut off from Eden and from God's presence. And friends, so are we, all of us to this day, because of this. We are all fell under this conditional covenant. We all sinned in Adam. This is what Scripture teaches us. This is why we're bankrupt. This is why we search for meaning and happiness, but never seem to find it. This is why there's a, a weight on our back. It's because we're separate from God, cut off from his goodness and pleasure. That is the curse of sin. But friends, in this curse is buried an unconditional covenant. That as the scriptures begin to unfold, and we'll see by, by the time we reach chapter 12, there is a promise that God makes to, uncondi- to rescue us without condition. In other words, we don't have to climb a mountain or go to church or spin, spin in the air or do some kind of fitness regime or eat certain foods. God says, I will save you because I am gracious. And that's his unconditional promise to us. It's here that God promises that through this curse, by this curse, in this death, will come a savior, a hero, who will conquer death by crushing the serpent. Remember this passage? The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, will destroy the consequences of sin by dying for his people. And he will come from the seed of Eve, from the fruit of Adam and Eve's marriage. From the Adam generation, by the seed of the first parents. So you see, I'm already introducing, I think, I hope, what is the significance of this genealogy. By the generation of Adam and Eve will come the conqueror, the hero, the one who who God has unconditionally promised to save us. You see, why are these generational logs, these lists of names in Scripture? It's because God promised that through the progeny of Eve would come a Savior. It needs to be recorded. It's his promise being played out and fulfilled. We can have demonstrated to us the faithful hesed of God. That God is continuing life and producing offspring through Adam and Eve that will come the Messiah. The seed promise is so important that Genesis, the book of Genesis, many argue, is organized, if you could say like the the chapters in Genesis, the original chapters in Genesis, are organized by genealogies. They're called toledots in Hebrew. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, gives us the first one. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Well, chapter, chapter 2 is in our chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam, chapter 2. And it goes on and on from there in Genesis, from the generations of Noah to Shem to Terah and to more. All throughout Genesis we see this. And it's at this point in our Bible reading that we oftentimes tend to yawn. We kind of trip over these things, these lists of names. If you're like me who can kind of visually... <clears throat> see the way the words are structured on the page, I can kind of tell when the, a- when the names end, you know, over here. And I'm like, ah, I'm just going to skip over there. I don't, need to, I don't need to deal with all this. You know, th- these are just a bunch of names. It's not going to help my growth in Christ, so I just skip, <laughs> right? Um, that's kind of, we, we tend to yawn or skip to the end. We think, why is the author boring us with so much tedious information? <laughs> What's the purpose of this laundry list of names, indeed. We, have, we ask this question. Now, it's that question I've already kind of given you a little um, answer to, but I want to unpack this more. Why does the Bible give us this, in particular, this generational log of names? I believe it has to do with his covenant, his loyalty to his covenant, his unconditional covenant, his hesed, his loving kindness towards us. Let's look at this. This is the written account of Adam's family line. This is the book of generations of Adam's family line, and what follows is a long list of names. As we read on, we see ten different patriarchs and the naming of a son in particular that they, that they had. Um, we we kind of note their abnormally long lives, right? They're living 800, 900, 700 years. Um, we also kind of note the, the, their old age in which they're delivering children, <laughs> Right, 90 years old, 80 years old, 100 years old. Um, um, they're, they're, part in this, but they're sexually active and married and having children at that old age. 
incredible. We, know, we notice a, a repetition of, of certain language. Um, he became the father of. We see that over and over again. He had many more sons and daughters. So it wasn't just this one. He had many more sons and daughters. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, right? We, we read this over and over again. There are some important takeaways, I think, um, that, that would, would reveal to us that this isn't just an arbitrary accounting of names. This isn't, uh, you know, genealogy.com or whatever it is that, that business is that you can find out that your great-great-great-grandfather was from, you know, Brussels or something. It's not just uh, curiosity, you know, about where we came from. There's more to this than that. And that's what I want to uh, talk about this morning. This, arbitra- this seemingly arbitrary list of names is very important to us by way of application. The first point of application I want to make about this, number one, is that people matter. People matter. We wouldn't have so many lists of names all throughout Scripture if people didn't matter to God. Humankind, humanity, has value. We're worth something. You're worth something to God. Our actions matter. Our behaviors matter. Our lives matter. Isn't that encouraging and terrifying at the same time? That our, that our behavior counts? Our lives matter. We kind of like that one. Oh, I'm important. You know, that's great. But our behavior is important too. All throughout Scripture, we even read about books in heaven recording people's names and deeds. Malachi chapter 3, for example. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. A very simple and a very basic reason why the Bible provides this generational log for us, quite simply, is because we are important to God. Individual people, your life is important to God. You are not forgotten. You're not just a number. We're not just one of the ants on the ant hill. And it means something that that means something very important for us that our life matters. Your life matters. You're not arbitrary. There's meaning and purpose to your existence. And it's bound up in God's, God's defining that for you. God's declaring, decreeing that you are an important person. <clears throat> Jesus reminds us, remember this incredible statement. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The hairs on my head are numbered. What does that mean? Like, he counted them? God knows that if there are 7,005? How arbitrary. God loves us, created us, made us in his image. If God so values us, if God ascribes to us value, here's a very simple question for us. Why do we base so much of our own value on the opinions of other people, on what mom or dad says or thinks, on what a friend thinks, or a coworker or a boss. You see, friends, what matters is that God knows your name and has it recorded and knows who you are. Isn't that the most important thing on earth? Why do you fear man, Scripture says, whose breath of life is in his nostrils? Who's like the grass, here today, gone tomorrow? Isn't that incredible? If God so values us, we don't need to fear the created thing, only him. We don't see in Scripture uh, an accounting of all kinds of trees or fish or birds. There's no... um, there's, there's no place in the Bible that gives the generational log for a bug. Right? It doesn't do that. And, the, and by the way, there is no bug Bible. Right? God is not revealing himself in a, in a way that expresses hesed, loving kindness, to anything but us. He speaks to us through the created thing. He doesn't speak to the tree through the created things or to the bugs or to the animals. He speaks to you through those things. So people matter. Your name matters. 
your life matters. And why? Why, why are we so important to God? When God created man, mankind, humanity, he made them in his likeness. That's why. You are created in the image of God. You alone are created in the image of God. There is no other created thing on this earth that was created for the express purpose of intimate love with the creator. That's why he created you. He didn't do this for any other thing. Isn't that fantastic? So friends, your name matters. You matter. That's why. That's why you're important to God. And that's why our obedience or disobedience to him matters. The generational account also demonstrates to us, secondly, communion. That's the second thing we can see, communion. Let me explain this. There is not one name here. There's many names. Right? You see that? There are ten. Not just one. Because if it were just one, one name, it might give that person some kind of inflated view of himself. Well, God only named me. I'm on the list. Right? But there are ten names. There's a lot more. And by the way, we'll get to this later, but that person is eventually snuffed out. They're gone. And he died. Right? But there's a communion here. Not one name, but many names. And not only a lot of names, but there is an account of what is the fruitful union of marriage. Adam plus Eve equals Seth. Right? You see that? That's family. So this isn't just an account of names. This is an account of family. You see that? It's a family log. It's a family tree, so to speak. In church, in church history, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, today the Eastern Orthodox Church, defined God's image as not simply male and not simply female. And they didn't say what it meant to be created in God's image was um, male and female united in marriage. You see, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, by the way, is like the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, they're the church to the East. At one point in church history, the church split between the East and the West. The West became the Roman Catholic Church, and the East became the, Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's, uh, you know, a freebie for you. Um, but the Eastern Orthodox Church asked the question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean... Is, it me, is, is man by himself the image of God? Is woman by herself the image of God? They said, no, no, not by themselves, together. So some people would say, well, no, together, when they're married, then that, they're expressing the image of God. They would say, even beyond that, it's not just marriage, but it's also the fruit of marriage. So husband, wife, child. Together, when you look at that combined, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's what the Eastern Orthodox Church, how it defines that. Now, I disagree with that. I think all of us stand alone as image bearers. Um, so I do, I do disagree with that. But um, I do think that it's true that because God is triune, that in other words, there is a communion in his person. See, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three in person. There's a community in the one God. And I know that that's confusing. Um, church history calls that the Trinity, Right, One God, three in person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a union in one God. What, what we can find here is that there is an in, interconnectedness between us. What it does mean that we're created in the image of God is that we're, that we're not alone, that we're connected to each other, that there is a community of people, not just us. There's an interconnect, interconnectedness between us just like there is in the Godhead. And friends, this genealogy shows us that. There's an interconnectedness in each name mentioned. One person's name can't stand on its own. It requires what came before it. You see, for Seth to be, Adam and Eve needed to be, and so on. You see? We are all interconnected and dependent on each other. If we're made in God's image, it means two things. That we are made to be in relationship with God, but also in relationship with each other. That there is a familial bond amongst all humanity that we have in common. And that's why the author, the famous author, uh, C.S. Lewis said, 
There are no ordinary people. No ordinary people. And might I add that there are no insignificant people or less important people. And friends, this should certainly deflate our egos. You might be feeling pretty good this morning. You just ripped out a hundred, you know, ab crunches. You know, you're feeling a little bit better than the person that didn't exercise this morning, aren't you? Right? Or maybe, a, oh, you, you worked hard, you got a million bucks saved. You know, you know, if other people would have a lot more money, if they were like me, and they were such a hard worker like I am, we, we, our egos get inflated. But what this teaches us is that we're all connected. We're all on the same level. This genealogy shows us that we're all part of this human family. No matter the economic class, no matter the color of your skin or gender or age, no matter what your nationality might be, or might I dare to even claim whatever your sinful tendency might be. You see, don't we do that? We, we feel a little bit morally superior to other people when you know, they struggle with something that we think is a lot worse than what we struggle with, right? That's what we do. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become, become the mother of all the living. You see, friends, you can look back to your great-great-great-grandfather in France or Switzerland or wherever he might come from, but you could always go a little bit further, you know, maybe find somewhere in Israel or some, something like this, but, you know, you go far back enough, it ends at Eve. We all end there. That means there's a bond between us. No matter who we are, no matter how much money we make, there is a bond between us. There is no ordinary person. Right? Amen? There is a communion, a community that we all share in common. We are a common human family. And that should mean something about the way that we treat others. Right? If they're me, in a sense, right? If we have the, the same mom and dad, is, doesn't that mean that they have just as much dignity and worth as I do? I think that's what it should mean. But let's look at the third reason I think that this genealogy is here. Because it explains to us the significance of life. The significance of life. And the first thing I want to say about this, very simply, is that life is short. Now I can look at these names and say, well, they almost lived a thousand years. They lived a long time. But friends, even their lives ended. Life is short. And if life is short, life is significant. Right? If life is short, life is significant. As odd as their long lives, lives might seem to us, why do they live so long? And I've heard all sorts of theories about the, you know, some water in the atmosphere making everything bigger and live longer and all this, all this stuff. And, you know, that may or may not be true. I don't know. The Bible says that they lived a long time. Other people say that this is just a metaphor. They didn't really. This is some poetical device. You know, I, I'm, that's not really what's concerning me right now. More of what's concerning me right now is that, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. I kind of want to focus on that because whether you live 100 years or 900, we die. There was a time when every single person in this room did not exist. Did you know that? That's the message of Scripture. That there was a point in time where we did not exist at all. That's a unique Christian teaching, by the way. Other religions don't believe that. Some religions say that, no, we've all just always been in other forms, and we've just kind of, it's the circle of life, Lion King type of stuff, right? Like, but Christianity says, no, there was a time that you were not, you are now, and because of sin, there's a time that you will die. And you have one life, and it's short. You see, that's the message of Scripture. Just as life had a beginning, it has an end. And just as we had no control. Did you have a say in being born? Did, you, did someone ask you before you were born, would you like to be born? No one did that. You had no power or control over it. You just popped into existence one day. And here you are. You had no say. And here you are, here we sit. And friends, just as we have no control over our coming to be, we have no control over our coming to an end. 
You can get frozen like Walt Disney if you want. But you will die. You will end one day. Karl Barth was a German um, uh, theologian and brilliant scholar in the 20th century. He said, there will come a moment when still alive, we shall not be able to live any further. For the time we shall then have will be a time with a present, but with no more future. What he's saying is, there will come a point for each and every one of us where there are no more moments to look forward to in life. That those are all past, and then we'll pass. There was once a time when we did not exist, and death, friends, is the threat again of our non-existence. Now that sounds dreary and dark. I know it sounds like this. Every, everyone faces this and, un, and understands that because life in, is short, that life is important. Right? We get this. So time beginning and ending in life implies meaning in life, in my life. It means that the short life that I have matters, is important. In the ancient Near East, I kind of told you this already, this still exists today, but it was far more prevalent in the ancient Near East. Um, most people believed that time was, was uh, cyclical, right? It kind of went around and around. Scripture is very clear that, that, that time has a beginning and an ending, so it's linear. It, it progresses, it begins, it progresses, and it ends, that's the message of the Bible. Well, in the ancient Near East, their philosophy and religion said, no, time just goes around and around. There's no beginning or no ending. Okay? Now, what's, why is this important? Well, if that's true, maybe I've lived a hundred times before this life in some kind of, in the multiverse, right? <laughs> or, or perhaps, and I'll live a hundred more times. It kind of diminishes the importance of now. Doesn't it? The, the decisions that we make today. Because, you know, I'll die. I'll have another chance. I'll get behind the plate again. You know, I'll get the girl in the next life. You know, right? I'll just, you know, study harder. Or, you know, I know what she doesn't like now. So, you know, the next life, I won't do that again. <laughs> right? So it kind of diminishes the, the impact of your personal choices today. <clears throat> The Bible doesn't present life or time like this. We're born once, we die once, and what we do in between matters. It happens once and then it's over. Right? Our choices to marry, to have children, to hate, to murder, to gossip are unique and unrepeatable events. There won't be a seventh life from now where you can be kind to your mom instead of cruel. You see the importance of this? So you see, it's, it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow for us because it makes us realize the weight, the gravity of our choices. It also kind of makes us regret things that we've done because we know we can't change them. I kind of much prefer like the idea that I could go, you know, I can go back in time or leap into another life where I don't have to make that choice again. But the the hard and sobering message of scripture is that when we make our choice, it's made. You see, it's a hard way to look at this, but that means that life is important, it's significant, and what we do matters. And this generational list shows that. These people lived, these ten names, they lived, they made their choices, they had children, and then they died. One author said, we are a people who belong within a significant history. And it's significant because it happens once. Because it has a start and it has a finish. And that's it. Makes you think, hmm, Am I too selfish with my husband or with my wife? Do we get angry too easily all the time at everybody? Am I sleeping or drinking or smoking, shooting my life away? You see, life is important, friends. And this shows us that. Today, we're fascinated with, with genealogies. What's the name of that? 
Ancestors.com, there it is. We're fascinated with this, um, this today. We, people pay money, actually, to figure out who their great-great-grandpappy was. Um, this, uh, this genealogy, quite frankly, is telling us what became of Adam. What happened to him? Well, what happened to Adam was Noah. That's the point of this genealogy. This is the genealogy of Adam. Ba, 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 ba. And then Noah. You see, this is the introduction to the life of Noah and the events of Noah. So what happened to Adam? Noah happened to Adam. See, in the reverse, we could say, um, we, we could also say, well, Noah could ask the same question. Adam's looking forward, but Noah could look backwards. Where did I come from? You can do, you can do the same thing. Well, Noah came from this guy and this guy and this guy and Adam. Right? And that gives Noah's life a, a measure of significance. And I think that's why sometimes we're interested in who our relatives were. You know, were they great men of brilliance? Were they military leaders? But then we find out maybe something bad. You know, like they, maybe they were some scumbags on the list, right? We, we kind of want to know this because we're trying to make sense of who we are at times, right? I think at times that's why we pursue this. Maybe that's why I have a, an alcohol problem or, or you know, maybe the, my personality is like this and not like that because I'm, I'm in a long line of this kind of person. Noah could see himself coming from Adam. He came from Adam, and that gave him his life perhaps a certain measure of meaning and purpose. But there's, an, there's one more question to ask. Well, where did Adam come from? Where did he come Where did Adam and Eve, where did great, great, great mom, grandma, and grandpa Adam and Eve come from? Well, according to Scripture, they were the special creation of God meant to enjoy him forever. Ah, oh, there I am. There you are. There we are. You see, friends, it's not about the guy from France 300 years ago. It's about the God who created Adam and Eve for his pleasure and for your pleasure. That's where you are. You're right there. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? The special creation of God meant to enjoy him forever. That's our origin. That's our timeline. That's our genealogy. So the question we have to ask is, do I love him? If he created us for us to love him, do I love him? Or do I love everything else but him? Good question. Number four, the fourth thing this genealogy teaches us um, soberly and with difficulty, it teaches us about the fall. We all search for the significance of our lives before we existed by looking at our, our heritage. The Bible's answer is that before you were born, you did not exist. Before Adam was, you can go back to Adam, before Adam was, he did not exist. This makes us a lot less important than we think we are, <laughs> right? A lot less ne necessary than we might have imagined. But by God's creative power, we were given life. Yet each one of us die. All ten of these patriarchs are dead and gone. <clears throat> and friends, one day, so will we. It's hard uh, not to recognize, I think, that in this gene genealogy, we see the very clear message of judgment. God's curse over sin. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And friends, here is that awful curse being played out in each and every generation. All the way up to us. Because all of us will share the same fate. Genesis chapter 5 reminds us that death is a sign of God's judgment on a sinful people. According to Scripture, no matter what we might think or say to sort of psychologically cope with death as it approaches or it hits someone we love, death, friends, is not natural. It's the divine judgment on human guilt and sin. And friends, because of that, death, in this sense, 
should be feared because it is God's judgment on sin. That's not how we talk about death. All across this world, the way that we talk to death is that it's the next chapter. They're in a better place. I've never been to any funeral in my whole life where I've ever heard anyone say they're in a worse place. That's not how we talk about death. All of us imagine that death somehow is a, is a benefit to the end of our misery. But friends, death is a curse. The curse of sin. It's the judgment of God on our lives. We die for one simple reason, because we're sinners. And to be left in our sin is to continue in death forever. Scripture calls that the second death. You might have heard of it as hell. And friends, this is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And I can't imagine any other motivation besides that, well, uh, there are a few others, but I can't imagine this not being one of them is what I meant. That when this author put this list of names and repeatedly recorded the fact that they all died, had in mind the curse of sin in that day, you will surely die. Friends, death is a mirror reflecting to us that there is a God and that we have rejected him and sinned against him. Often I know we want to pretend that death isn't bad or as bad as some make it out to be. Adam and Eve did the same thing. Hath God said you will die? You will not die. You'll be better. The death of humankind, friends, humanity isn't the circle of life. It's not so that the gazelles can eat us and have life and we live through the gazelle. It's the curse of God on sin. Friends, death is not the universe rebooting and giving us another chance. It is divine judgment, the final judgment of God on sinners. But there's good news. Because this genealogy also demonstrates to us, lastly, the hesed of God Almighty, the faithful love of the Lord. Now, at the start of the sermon, recall I I talked to you about this hesed, his faithful, unconditional, and covenantal love. What does this list have to do with that? Friends, this, this genealogy tracks the promise kept by God in that curse that he pronounced, the unconditional covenant made to Adam and Eve in the curse that he pronounced, which was death. The general, this general, generational list is demonstrating that God is being faithful to that promise. Remember the first generational list, 2-4, the account of the heavens and the earth. Well, what became of the heavens and the earth? Remember what we said, what became of Adam? Well, Noah. What became of the heavens and the earth? Well, the curse became um, of the heavens and the earth and humanity. Well, the the second generational list is Adam in chapter 5. Well, what became of Adam? We just said, what became of Adam was Noah. Well, what became of Noah? Well, what became of Noah was Shem. Well, what became of Shem? Not the three-third stooge, Right? (laughs) What became of Noah was Shem. Well, what became of Shem? What became of Shem was Abraham. Well, what became of Abraham? What became of Abraham was David. What became of David? What became of David was the Messiah, was Christ. Friends, this is the generational list of Adam. This is what happened to Adam. What happened to Adam was Christ. That's why this is being recorded for us. Luke 3 tells us this very clearly. Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, of Noah, of Lamech, of Enoch, of Seth, of Adam. Jesus, what happened to Adam? What happened to Adam was Jesus. And why is that significant? Because God promised Adam and Eve to crush death through his seed. So God, all throughout the Old Testament, records all of these, this promise passing on from person to person, the marvelous loving kindness of God to keep his word, to be faithful to it, and to save us unconditionally. To save us by his grace. 
enter Christ, the son of Adam, to rescue us poor, miserable, wretched sinners from his anger and just wrath, came Christ, took on death for us as the promise fulfilled. Amen? Oh, praise God. So we die. That's bad news. As each ten of the... Each of these ten men die, and each one of us die. Friends, shouldn't it be clear that we're not the seed meant to destroy Satan and death and the curse of sin? Our, our life should demonstrate that. We're not the Savior. We haven't conquered sin and death, but there is someone else who has. And that's why John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ's. We are not the Christ's. We're on that long generational list of people that live and die. But there is the seed, Jesus Christ, and through him we will live. He must increase, John the Baptist said. I must decrease. Friends, we are not the Christ. It might sound like a bummer to you that we don't have all power in our hands, but you are free to stop trying to save yourself, to moralize your way into heaven, to be good enough, strong enough, or smart enough. You see, friends, for by grace you have been saved. It's the unconditional promise of God to save sinners who have repented and believed in him. And that's what we see in Enoch, by the way. We see Enoch, a man who is faithful in this list of ten, who the only person besides Noah is said something positive about. That he loved and walked with God. And Hebrews chapter 11 says that he believed God. He had faith in God. Now that's significant because that means that Enoch realized that he could not save himself but needed God to save him through Christ. That's why he walked with God. Friends, if you want to walk with God, if you want to have life, if you don't know Christ this morning, stop trying to save yourself. Believe that there is a king, that there is a hero, that God promised a Savior to rescue you. Trust in that this morning, friend. Turn from your sin. Stop trying to save yourself, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.